0: Good morning, Grace City. Well, it's not very difficult today to point out all the ways in our world where we see disunity, all you have to do is have sort of a cursory look at uh, social media, at public or private discourse today, at the news media, and you see incredible disunity and social tension. In particular, we've seen this past year that our disunity and our lack of selfless love for one another, that it still affects the way that we treat those who are different from us. I'm talking today about racism. No matter where you are at in the process, in the, uh, or in processing the events of this past year, I'm sure you realize how important discussions of racism and racial reconciliation are. Recently, many solutions have been proposed to fight oppression and to correct the serious injustices that still exist in this world and in this country. But the question that I want to ask you this morning is this. Are those solutions enough? Are they enough? Call me a pessimist, but the reality is that racial tensions in this world, they're not new, they're ancient. They've been here for millennia and our ability to find new reasons to hate and to oppress one another and to ignore injustices, to walk past our neighbors who are truly suffering and hurting, our ability to do all of that is appalling. And yet, I still think there's reason for profound hope. But I don't think there's reason for great hope in anything new. This morning, I want to look at something ancient. I'd like to show you how an ancient text, how the Bible, how it speaks profoundly into our human disunity with a message of peace and of hope. Friends, hear this this morning. True racial reconciliation is not going to come from anywhere except through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the person and the work of our Savior Jesus. He alone is. Is our peace. Today we're going to unpack this as we look specifically at Paul's letters to the Ephesians, his letter to the Ephesians. And we're going to look specifically at chapter 2. And we'll begin to consider, and we'll begin by considering the ancient problems of racism, of racial tensions that Paul faced. And then we'll look at the gospel solution for unity and peace that Paul sees in Jesus. And then third, we'll consider those implications, the implications from these two things as we look at our own lives here today in Vancouver in 2020. So turn with me right away to that first point, looking at the problem as Paul saw it back in his day. As you turn to look at the problem in the first century world, the problem of racism in the first century world, we need to realize something. Even though Paul knows the profound sting of racial oppression personally, as we'll come to see, he doesn't assess the problem the same way that we do. Let me show you what I mean by explaining a little context. See, Paul is deeply aware of horrific racial sins. And in Galatians 2, we read that Paul, though he was a Jew, he has been chosen by God to be the messenger for Jesus The apostle for Jesus to be sent out to plant churches specifically among non-Jewish people with uh, the title, with what the Jews would call them, uh, the Gentiles. He's the apostle of the Gentiles. But as he takes the message of Jesus beyond the ethnic barrier of Judaism, he faces persecution by Jews who hated what Paul was doing. Why did they hate him? They hated it because they had taken the truth that God had uniquely called them to be a blessing to this world. That's the truth that we see throughout the Bible, but beginning in Genesis chapter 12, where God raises up a man named Abraham and calls him to be a blessing to others in this world to communicate God's law and God's love and his grace to others. They took that truth, the Jewish people took that truth, and they twisted it, and they let it develop in them this sinful pride. It caused them to think that they were superior to those around them. John Stott comments about this in his commentary on the book of Acts. He says, they became filled with racial pride and hatred. They despised the Gentiles as dogs. And to be clear, they didn't have the same sentiment toward dogs that we have in Vancouver in 2020. This is not a nice thing to say. And they developed traditions that kept them apart from them. So Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians. And in fact, he's writing this letter to the Ephesians from prison in Rome. And Paul was in prison in Rome as a direct result of racial conflict. We read about the events of that conflict that eventually led to his imprisonment in Acts 21. And there... We read that Paul had returned to Jerusalem with some of the Greek converts to Jesus that he'd been witnessing to from the churches that he had planted. And we read that this is what happened when he got there. Acts 21, verses 27 to 31. When the seven days were almost completed. The Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everyone." everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Friends, Paul is familiar with racial conflict. But incredibly, even after he personally suffers because of these racial hatreds and tensions and these racial riots he experienced in Jerusalem, when he's writing in prison uh, to the Ephesians, he doesn't divert from his calling. He doesn't change ministry strategies. He doesn't form a plan to change Jerusalem's political landscape. No, Paul stakes to his guns. He preaches the good news about Jesus. Why? Because the, because the problem that Paul saw, the problem that Paul was interested in fixing, it was a lot deeper than the current laws in Jerusalem. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Paul says that our fundamental problem isn't racism. Friends, we need to hear that today. Our fundamental problem, the Bible teaches, is not racism. Our fundamental problem, Paul teaches us, is separation from God because of slavery to our sin. Look at the text, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. He says this, In this text, Paul says that our problem is that we as human beings, we live in opposition to the good and glorious character of a holy God. We live in opposition to his good purposes for us. And Paul says that we are personally sinful, that we resist God's good purposes for us, that we're dead in sin. We make decisions as individuals to oppose him. But he also says that we're corporately sinful as a community that together we resist God's purposes that are good for us. We follow the course of this world. Paul says we live in passionate sin together as we reinforce our sinfulness in this sort of global confirmation bias in the way that we are living. And this sinfulness Paul's writing about, it permeates our societies. It's truly systemic. It's why you get into conflict with the people around you. It's why you resist caring for those who need your love and affection. It's why you withdraw from others in their suffering and in their need rather than move towards them. When we live outside of relationship with God, not worshiping him, not delighting in him, not being satisfied in his love, we live following the course of this world in individual and corporate sinfulness. And now, of course, In our lives today, come back to me, in our lives today, in 2020, we see something is wrong in our world. We do see it, don't we? But the reality, I think, is that our sin blinds us. And it blinds us so that we don't acknowledge the full scope of the problem of our sinfulness, as Paul describes it. Friends, in our sin, we want a solution, but we want a superficial solution. We want our disunity to stop We want the pain of our sinful actions and conflict to end here on earth. But friends, we don't want to be reconciled to God. We want less turmoil, but our hearts are hard toward love himself. And as long as we look merely horizontally at the manifestation of our sin and suffering on earth, we will never get to the heart of what we really need. This is why Paul preaches a gospel of salvation for sinners, reconciled to God, but also, as we'll see, reconciled to one another. Look at point two. This is the gospel solution. Because Paul sees the same brokenness in this world that you and I do. But he doesn't think about that brokenness as a one-dimensional line, a one-dimensional horizontal line of human-to-human relationships with brokenness between each point. That's not how he thinks about our problem. He thinks about our problem two-dimensionally two as a triangle, the horizontal line broken, but also the vertical lines of a relationship to God broken as well. And in the gospel, Paul says that God has done something incredible. In the gospel, Paul says, God solved all the brokenness, both vertically and horizontally, by collapsing the horizontal and the vertical divide, by uniting us together in Jesus, washing us, cleansing us of our sin by his blood, and bringing us to relationship in God. In one new man. In Jesus, the God-man. In Jesus, through the gospel god reconciled himself to humanity reconciled us to himself and in jesus god has reconciled human to human to human reconciled together in unity with one another in jesus and then look at the way that paul describes this read it in ephesians two thirteen to 18 and look at, in particular the way that paul talks about unity and oneness and place of division in Jesus. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and non-Jew. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself, in Jesus, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both vertically to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Remember the crowds in Acts 21. Remember that they were about to kill Paul because they thought he brought a Greek into the courts of the temple. But here, Paul says that in the gospel, the dividing wall of hostility, the walls that were meant to separate one from the other, that they're broken down in Jesus' broken body on the cross as he reconciles all of us as sinners to God. What's Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about this. The ancient temple of the Jews... It had a court for non-Jews, a place where those who the Jews were meant to be witnesses to could come and could worship God. But it was the outermost court. There were these sort of concentric squares of closeness to God who appeared only in the very center in the Holy of Holies. And there, neither Jew nor Gentile could come, except for the Jewish high priest, once a year. But in the gospel, All the dividing walls, the walls separating Jew from Greek, the walls separating Jew and Greek from God because of their sinfulness, in the gospel, all of those walls are removed. As all of our sin together is put on Jesus, and our sin is dealt with and forgiven, we're covered by his blood so that we can be reconciled forever, brought into the presence of a holy God reconciled to him welcomed into his home as his children filled with his holy spirit paul says he himself jesus is our peace notice the strength of paul's language he says he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility he's killed the enmity between man and man in his flesh in jesus Because of Jesus' physical death and resurrection outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, we who have turned our backs on the God of love and as a result have turned our backs on one another, we can be forgiven, united to God and to one another in love in one new humanity in Jesus. Friends, this means that if we are in Jesus, who we are has changed. It means that we have a new identity in Jesus. It means that for me, is I'm no longer just Brant. I'm no longer just Brant, the Dutch, English, Norwegian. I'm Brant, forgiven and washed clean by the blood of Jesus, reconciled to God because of his unbelievable mercy poured out on me. And you are the same. Whether you are Chinese or Taiwanese or Japanese or Korean or Jewish, Whether you are English or French or German or Italian, whether you are Kenyan or South African or Ghanaian or Mozambican, whether Indian or Persian or Filipino, whether First Nations, Mexican, Caribbean or Brazilian, we are all together united in one body and the new humanity in Jesus Christ, filled with his one spirit. Friends, get that for a moment. Think about that. The one spirit of God doesn't fill us as individuals who are separate. It fills one body, his church together corporately with making no ethnic distinction. We are one, beloved equally as children of the one same father. I want to think about that a little bit more deeply now. I want to turn to our third point, and consider the implications of this gospel teaching that Paul knows and loves. And as we consider what this means for us today, I want to be the first to point out that the church has not always lived out the implications of this gospel well. We have often failed here. To our shame, we have often failed. There's a very good reason why after this series, beginning next week, we will start a series on lament, mourning over sin, mourning over the brokenness of this world. It's appropriate for us. It's appropriate because very often we have thrown up our hands in despair or in indifference and we have looked at the injustices in this world. When we've looked at racism, racism, we've often pointed to the gospel and done nothing. We've often thought of the gospel as like, yes, this is the truth of the gospel and we just speak it out and we don't live differently and we don't live in the way that we've been called to. The reality is that God has raised us a new life and a new humanity in Jesus. And a new humanity in Jesus doesn't just think differently. No, a new humanity in Jesus is made new in him to live and to love differently in this world as well. So how does this gospel unity work out in our day-to-day lives then? Let's look at that together. I have five points. Well, first, it means that we forgive as we have been forgiven. One pastor once gave the illustration that if you went to his house and if you knocked over a lamp in his house and if you broke it, and if he chose to forgive you for breaking his lamp, it wasn't as if nobody pays the cost. No, he takes the cost upon himself. He pays the price to replace his lamp. In the same way, when we forgive in the church, it's the same. It costs us. Forgiveness means not holding on to our bitterness. Forgiveness means not being cold and aloof from others. It means not revisiting the offense in our minds again and again and again and building up resentment towards that other person. It means not holding the offense against the other party any longer. Instead, forgiveness means entrusting the offense to Jesus, who has forgiven us of our sins. Forgiveness costs us. But praise God, in our forgiveness, it's not like we draw uh, debits from our own limited human account of forgiveness and love. No, praise God that in the gospel, the love of God is poured into our finite hearts for the Holy Spirit who he has given us to cause us to be able to forgive others, to pay that debt, to take it upon ourselves because of the great debt that he has paid for us, for our sin, moving us to love even our enemies. So friends, if you struggle at this point, if there is some deep, deep wrong that you've experienced, that your people have experienced, I want to encourage you to call out on Jesus. His spirit dwells within you. He will help you to forgive. Second, this gospel of union with Jesus and with one another, it affirms the goodness of God who does not show partiality to anyone or to any ethnicity. What we see in the unifying work of Jesus is a God who does not play favorites. No matter how white your children's story Bible is, God doesn't look at this world loving one people group over another. In Jesus, he receives all people who he created to himself in love, and mercy, in grace. So, when you see someone then who is different from you, But who is made in the image of God as all humankind are. When you see someone being discriminated against, being treated with indifference, being hated, oppose it, confront it. It's sin. God shows no partiality, God loves the stranger, He loves the foreigner. But as you oppose it, I want to encourage you to speak truth with hope and with grace and with mercy for oppressor and for oppressed alike. Because all of us together are sinners before God in need of the reconciliation and grace that he offers us in Jesus. Third, when you see those who are disadvantaged because of the injustices of this world, love them as Christ has loved you. Sacrifice your comfort as Jesus sacrificed his comfort to come to save you. Move close to that person in their situation as Jesus moved close to you in your situation. If you have a position or blessings from God that you could use, use your place then in society for the good of others. Use what God has given you to bless those who have less than you have. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says this. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture and I think it, it gives us a motivation for this sort of action Really well. Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Friends, go and do likewise. Fourth, there is a reason why this sermon is the third sermon in this series. There's a reason why it comes after a sermon on mercy and a sermon about love for your neighbor. Because loving our literal neighbors who are different than us, showing them mercy, and showing them love that costs us, it's a profound way to live as God's witnesses on earth in this world that is so full of conflict, and this world that is divided by racism. And now I realize that you probably hear that, and you realize that it doesn't sound explosive, doesn't sound very radical or revolutionary. And for some of you, that's going to bother you, especially when your social media feeds are exploding with new ideas and words that you've never heard before. And you're going to wonder, is this gospel message really enough? Is it really effective? Can it really do the work that needs to happen in this world? And I want to challenge you here. Friends, living in relationship with the God who is love And extending that love in mercy and grace towards others as you devote yourself to a specific people and a specific place in this world, that sort of thing has been changing the world for 2,000 years and it's not going to stop now. So keep on going. Keep on laboring. You will reap if you do not give up. Christianity has a quiet power. It's a modest power but it is true power in this world of death. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, but Jesus' kingdom will conquer this world. So if you want to participate in the change that Christianity is making, then devote yourself to the local church. Devote yourself to Jesus. Devote yourself to loving your neighbors who are different than you are. Fifth, to be xenophobic is literally in Greek to have fear of the other. Xeno from the word stranger and phobia or phobic from the word fear. But the word for hospitality in Greek that we're urged to in the Bible uh, in places like Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2, it's the opposite. It's not xenophobia, it's philoxenia. It's love of the stranger. So I have a question for you. Even if you feel in your heart that you aren't xenophobic, are you philozenic? You might not hate those who are different from you, but the more important question, Christ City, is this. Do you love them? The reality is that you probably default toward indifference to them. But I want you to note this. It's actually indifference that causes us to pass over injustices and hurts. It's indifference that insulates us from the hurts of other people. In the Bible, God hears the cries of the oppressed. Do we? And there's a reason for our indifference, I think. It's simple our indifference is because it's easy, because it's comfortable. There's a reason you hang out with people who are the same as you are. It's because it requires very little effort on your part. There's a reason why ethnic churches that were established long ago in Canada often remain ethnic churches in their third and their fourth generations. It's because it's uncomfortable to carry the mission of Jesus to people who are different from you. And yet, and yet, we serve a God who loves the stranger. A God who loves the foreigner, and it's his love that reconciled strange sinners like us to himself and to one another in the person of Jesus. So finally, as I close, I want to give you a biblical picture of the end of time. I want to whet your appetite with God's heart for the nations, with God's heart towards people who are different than you are. And I want you to use this picture to allow it to fill your heart with the same love of God for those of every tribe and nation and tongue in this world. Revelation 7 verses 9 to 10 say this. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb let's pray father your vision of love and inclusion and unity in jesus is so much bigger than ours Father, we confess that in our sin we have lo- we have not loved the stranger. We've not loved those who are different from us. We've not let the love of Christ that reached from heaven to earth cause us to reach across the street to those who are different. So, God, would you forgive us? Would you fill us with your spirit to act as your agents of love and mercy? and reconciliation in the gospel in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.